All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the John Q. Public Podcast Show. This is episode seven, and this is part three of our series on the U.S. Federal Reserve and the scamorama that has unfolded since 1913 when they passed the Federal Reserve Act. And in part one and part two, we discussed the history behind the creation of the Federal Reserve, you know, why it was established, why these handful of extremely wealthy bankers and businessmen decided to, you know, stake a claim to the production of all currency in the United States and doing so at a, you know, a substantial interest that the American people have to pay off in the form of, you know, taxation and other mechanisms. And today in part three, I think that we can dive into a little bit kind of like the, I guess you could call it a game, maybe. Maybe that's the uh, the best way to put it, right? Um, it's kind of like a spectator sport in a way, um, but it really is. It's It's a game, and our economy is completely built upon this game and it has been for over a hundred and some years right and it's gonna ensure over time as it has that banking losses are always shifted to the taxpayers and you can think about you know how many times over the course of, of history, the last 110 years, that there's been some sort of bailout for some sort of entity. And we can go back to 2008 when the government had those big, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in bailout money for failing institutions. And, you know, the, the taxpayers, us as American citizens, are the ones that are required to, you know, take care of this. And it's really cruel if you think about it. So the Federal Reserve creates currency to allow the government to provide money to keep certain institutions going or businesses or, or whatever, right? It could be General Motors or it could be Morgan Stanley or, you know, whatever it is. So they provide that. And through the government, via our taxes, we pay that money back. And you got to remember, for every dollar that the Federal Reserve creates there's an interest payment that's coming back to them. So we as the American people 
are keeping this select group of, you know, really it's kind of like families at, at this point, the, the descendants of the Morgans and the Rothschilds and these people that are still in charge of the Federal Reserve that determine what's going on. And another little tidbit, the, the President of the United States will, you know, quote, nominate a chairperson for the Federal Reserve. But what people don't know is that the President doesn't actually just pick whoever they want. The President is given a list of a select few individuals that the Federal Reserve is okay with the president selecting. And that's to ensure that the Federal Reserve has its guy or its lady in the position. And it's a controllable position. Because again, the U.S. federal government does not control the Federal Reserve Bank. So we're in a position where it is truly a game that we're all required to play. There's no way around the rules. If you think about it, you and I can't go create currency and say, well, this is good. You know, we can't go create our own financing for a mortgage and we just have to do what's dictated to us to be able to do. So the primary purchase here, primary purchase, primary purpose here is the Federal Reserve essentially for the last 110 years, it's been bailout after bailout after bailout. And so the Jekyll Island Group, which conceived of the Federal Reserve System, right? They create this national banking cartel, and it's dominated by the bigger banks. And they have an objective to involve the federal government to allow them then to shift any losses from the owners over to the taxpayers. And that's a controversial thing. But we can't really look at it any other way. When we look at the, the course of history of the last 110 years, So let's look at present day then. And let's understand how this actually works. The quote economics behind this whole thing. So we have to understand how it was designed to work. We know why it was established. We know what its purpose was. But let's look and... Just understand here from a common sense perspective, how does this actually work?
and we'll take a look at, you know, maybe we can use like a sports analogy here or something like that. But let's look at a few things. So the, the operational function of our monetary system here in the United States works very much like a professional sport and you can look at it like basketball or maybe football something like that and we've got certain designs within the game where you've got offensive schemes you've got defensive schemes and plays and everything and these same things are done over and over and over again with, you know, like they vary a, a little bit based on, you know, circumstances. Like in football, first down, second down, third down, you know, maybe in basketball, right, the last, you know, two minutes of the game, you might modify your plays or something like that. And there are rules which players are required to follow, okay? And... In sport, there's a, you know, a mission that each team has, or an objective. And, you know, as far as monetary policy, we as Americans, we fall into this dynamic. So if we look at this in, like, just, you know, plain, simple, common approach to it, if we were to have a descriptor or we were to describe what our monetary policy is in the form of a game, we would call it bailout. And the purpose would be to shift any kind of losses from the bank owners to the taxpayers. And they're going to do that in the following way. Okay, so the Federal Reserve, this system that we have, allows for commercial banks, okay, the big banks, you can think of like Chase Bank, PNC Bank, and others, they create money out of nothing. You have to understand this. The, the currency that is utilized in our country and then, you know, around the world, the, the paper on those, you know, those $1 bills and those fives and those hundreds, the coins that people use, quarters, nickels, dimes, etc. Okay. It doesn't actually have any value. Think about it. If the economy collapsed and we went back to how things used to be several hundred years ago in a bartering and trading society, okay, gold and silver or other precious metals were utilized as a form of payment and you could barter goods, services, that kind of thing. Paper money 
doesn't have any actual value. If everything went to crap and you needed to get some food or you needed to get some repairs done or whatever it might be, precious metals, trade of services, valuable goods, you would get laughed at if you tried to give someone a Federal Reserve note or coin or whatever. Those coins, nowadays, they're made out of steel and, and nickel and you know, or whatever combination. And it just doesn't have any actual value. So you, you have to understand that when they started printing currency, the it was just established, essentially, this is how it's going to be. American citizens, turn in your gold. So essentially, they're confiscating people's gold. And we will give you then Federal Reserve notes in, you know, whatever value we, as the bank, deem that it's worth. Okay? The banks then achieve incredible profits from this. Not by spending, but by lending and collecting interest. So it's this system that is perpetually creating more and more debt because the amount of money that's being created far exceeds what is ever going to be paid back. Because you have to understand, when they do a bailout, the money is being created because there is a significant shortfall somewhere else. And this is why, like if we look at the most recent COVID-19 stimulus checks that were sent out, which as a conservative, I disagree with. I know why they did it, right? What their thought process was behind it. I disagree with it, but I know why they did it. The problem is, again, the government asked or requested a sum of money from the Federal Reserve Bank. They created that money. Again, it's created out of nothing, sent into the economy for people to spend or save or whatever it might be. And you got to remember that in this game, and I, I hope this is very clear for people. So if they give this stimulus money out, if people aren't spending it in the economy, like, like let's say most people put it into the bank, it allows the banks then to continue leveraging that money that's in there. And remember, they're giving you almost nothing for interest. They're taking, like, let's say your stimulus check was, you know, 4000 Just or Let's use 5000 as an easy number. So, you know, you got a family and everything. So they give you the stimulus check. You don't need it right then and there. You put it in your savings account or checking or, you know, whatever. Okay, so it's making almost nothing as far as interest. You just put it in there for like down the road when you might need it. Well, you just put that money in the bank. The bank is going to continue loaning that out in the form of mortgages, more credit cards, 
whatever it might be. And we are at an all-time high for credit card debt. And you wonder, you know, what's going on behind the scenes there. That's a big part of it. But when the government says we need more money, the Federal Reserve creates it, there is an interest percentage that is associated with that. And it continues piling on. That's why the the debt ceiling, as you hear people talk about it, that's why the debt ceiling, it's never going to come down. The only way that that would ever come down is if the Federal Reserve said, we're not going to print another dollar until you, the United States, repay everything. It was created to continually accrue debt. And they know this and they don't care. Because as an owner of the Federal Reserve Bank, so these seven historical figures, these seven families, right? And this has been passed down the line and filtered through generations. They continue to have whatever they need and have money and money and money. They don't care because they're in possession of the gold. They're in possession of the precious metals. So they don't really care. So when a loan is put on the bank's books, it shows to them as an asset because it's earning interest. And they're going to assume someday it's going to be paid back. At the same time, they're going to have an equal entry made on the liability side of the ledger. And this would be because the newly created money in their checkbook is now in circulation. Most of which is just going to end up in some other bank, which then, you know, returns the canceled checks to the issuing bank for payment. And individuals, you and I, we might also bring some of this checkbook money back to the bank and, you know, we could request cash. The issuing bank then, right, they've got a potential money payout liability equal to the amount of whatever that loan is, right? So when a borrower can't repay and there's no asset which can be you know, taken, repossessed, whatever, to, you know, offset this, the bank then, right, they're forced to just write that off as a loss. But since most of that money originally was created out of nothing, and it didn't cost the bank anything except the, you know, the overhead for bookkeeping, there is very little of any value that is actually lost. It's just a bookkeeping entry. Do you understand now what is going on here? Now, a bookkeeping loss, it could certainly be, you know, a, a negative or, you know, like a like an undesirable to a bank because it causes the you know that loan then has to be removed from the ledger as an asset and there's not a reduction in the the liability there 
So your difference has to come from the equity of those who own the bank. Or another way of putting it, the loan asset is removed, but the money liability remains. So the money was created. It's out there somewhere. But even though the borrower can't repay it, and the bank that issued it still has the obligation to, re to redeem the check. And the only way to do this and balance that book is that they need to make a draw upon the capital which was invested by the bank's stockholders or they got to deduct it from the bank's current profits. But either way, the owners of the bank are losing an amount equal to the value of that defaulted loan. So to them, now it becomes real, right? If the bank has to write off a large amount of bad loans, the amount exceeds the value of the owner's equity. Hello, 2008, housing crisis, bad mortgages, etc. When that happens, it's all over. Bank is insolvent. And we saw this very clearly in the not-too-distant past. And you would think, right, that this, this is a very risky proposition. You would think that it would motivate bankers to be conservative in their loans. And, you know, it's probably true that most of them do, like when dealing with people and small businesses. But the Federal Reserve System, the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the FDLC, the Loan Corporation, are, you know, they guarantee that massive loans made to large corporations and to other governments won't fall completely and in its entirety upon the bank owner's shoulders should those loans go into default. You know, because the, the argument there is that if, if giant corporations or banks are allowed to fail, the nation would then suffer from, you know, vast unemployment, economic disruption, etc. So, you know, the end result of this, you know, policy and these decisions is that banks actually have, you know, little reason to be cautious and are protected against their own bad decisions. The larger the loan, the better produces it produces the greatest amount of profit with the least amount of effort think think about this a loan to another country which provides hundreds of millions of dollars in annual interest is just as easy to process as a loan for 50 grand to a local you know, a local 
business in, in, in your strip mall. If the interest is paid, like, they're good, right? If the loan defaults, the federal government will, quote, protect the public. And through, you know, different mechanisms, we'll make sure that the banks continue to get their interest. But individuals and small businesses will find it difficult to borrow money at reasonable rates because the banks can make more money on loans to giant corporations and to foreign governments. And bigger loans are safer for banks because the government will make them good even if they default. There's no guarantees like that provided for, for small loans. Right? The, the general public doesn't see the necessity to bail out the, quote, little guy as a way to save the system. Right? It's too small. Only when the money becomes so large that it's stupid does this uh, <laughs> this little, you know, ploy become something that can happen. And remember, a bank doesn't actually want a loan to be repaid. The, the only the only caveat there would be that you know the borrower would be looked at as you know dependable but the bank makes profit from interest on the loan not the repayment of the loan right the, the longer that you need to pay something the more money that you're paying to that financial institution think about a credit card let's say you get a credit card with a $5000 credit limit and remember, credit means debt. So let's say you max it out. If you look at the repayment terms there, it'll tell you if you paid just the minimum payment on that $5,000 credit card, if you maxed it out, it's probably going to tell you something like you're going to pay it off. It's going to take you 13 years and you're going to end up paying $14,000 on your original $5,000 credit line. Okay. If a loan is paid off, the bank needs to find another borrower. And that can really be like bothersome for them. And think about it. It's much better for the bank to have the existing borrower pay only the interest and never make payments on the loan, right? Interest-only payments. Does that sound familiar with student loans and other things? All, all someone's doing is, you know, kicking the debt can down the road. Which is exactly what our federal government is doing. That's why the debt's... It's like... Think about it. It would be exactly like if a bank, which you have a credit card with, allowed you to come to them every year and say, I need a higher credit line. And they were willing to raise it. So you maxed it out five grand this year. And you go to, you know, Chase Bank, who your credit card is through. And you go to them and you say, I'm going to need my uh, credit limit to go to 
you know, 7,500 next year or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. So the, and think about this here with the Federal Reserve and banks in general, they love lending money to governments because they, they don't ever expect them to get repaid. That's why the U.S. will always be fine. People are worried about, you know, catastrophe with things. We are able, because the U.S. dollar is a standard currency in so many areas around the world, and there's so many, regardless of what our debt situation is, we are receiving so much money in interest payments from other countries that we will be fine. We, you know, I don't want to do, you know, we don't want to be like in a situation where we're like fear mongering or anything like that. But, you know, this action is incredibly powerful for our Federal Reserve System. And it's done on a regular basis, right? And it's conducted all over the world. Think about, and people don't see this. Things are constantly buried, whether it's in the media or some new bill or legislation or whatever. There's this perception that disaster is inevitable, but it's never going to be. Government borrowing is this huge game within a game. You know, governments don't get out of debt. We're, you know, we're in this area of tens of trillions of dollars. But it doesn't matter. Because as long as you have the money coming in and you've got the ability to create money and lend to others, it's fine. It's this, again, kicking the debt can down the road. The system makes it profitable for banks to make large, risky loans. It's the kind of loan that banks make on a regular basis. So it leads us to the conclusion then, most of these bad loans, they're eventually going to default. And then the borrower comes to the bank, says, I can't pay. The bank then just rolls over the loan. It's a, you know, it's a move towards continuing to get perpetual interest. Right? The bank wouldn't care if every single person defaulted on their mortgage. They're going to go find someone else to pay on it. And they're going to find someone else to finance it, etc. Sure, some people can pay cash for something that's run down or small or on the auction block or whatever. That doesn't matter to them. Because you understand the whole ledger write-off thing. So the bank doesn't want to lose the interest because that's a stream of income. Just like an auto dealership, their stream of income isn't new vehicles. It's selling used ones and their service department. Right? The bank, however, can't afford to necessarily allow the borrower to go into default because that would require write-off. Right? They don't want that. So the bank just creates additional money out of nothing and lend that to the borrower so you have enough to continue paying the interest. Right? What looked like catastrophe is then just converted 
into, you know, a major score. Kind of like, uh, you know, on the fly in a sporting event, right? Some game which or play which looks like it's just going to turn into a nothing burger ends up as a touchdown, right, or something like that. They keep the old loans on the books as an asset, and it actually, the view of that asset then increases and results in higher interest payments, greater profit to the bank. But sooner or later, right, your your borrower is no, no longer interested in making interest payments. Borrower comes to realize that they are just, quote, working for the bank. And payments stop. You know, there's threats, all this other stuff. But the borrower just can't or won't pay. Right? Lender threatens the borrower. You know, um, see, <laughs> you know, threatening like, oh, you'll never be able to get a loan again or, you know, damage your credit. Da, 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 da. But finally, there's a compromise that's worked out. The bank agrees to create more money out of nothing, lend that to the borrower to cover the interest on both previous loans. But this time, they're up in their game to provide additional money to the borrower to spend on something other than interest. Borrower suddenly has a fresh supply of money for his purposes, plus enough to keep making those bothersome interest payments. Hello, cash out refinance. The bank, on the other hand, now has larger assets, higher interest income, greater profits. Exciting game for them. The reality hits, though. Borrower then determines, right, sinking deeper and deeper into this debt pit. Can't get out. Payments are so large that, you know, like, all your earnings or <laughs> a country's total tax base, right, a rollover gets rejected because you're just at a point where it's so big, right? Default is at the doorstep. So the loan then just gets rescheduled. Lower interest rate, longer period for repayment, right? It's completely restructured. But, you know, it's just like putting lipstick on a pig. just makes it look better. They can reduce their payment, but they're going to extend it, right? Oh, my gosh, sounds great. Borrower's burden is easier to deal with, but postpones paying it off. The loan remains an asset. Interest payments continue. And, you know, you could also have a situation, right, where you get this day of reckoning. Borrower realizes they're never going to repay it and then just refuses. Well, 
the banks still have another option. The most of the large banks in the country, right, they're operating at a high profit. The, you know, they've been using that profit, working off some of their own debts. And banks can absorb losses of, you know, bad loans to large corporations and foreign governments. But, you know, it's a major loss to stockholders, right? Who would receive, you know, nothing if you had some big adjustment period. You know, your CEO of the bank, they would instantly be fired. Can't have that. You know, it's just not part of the game plan. So, you know, we've we've had some companies where, you know, or countries or, or big organizations, right, where the debt's kind of just been absorbed. Um, but they'll just keep making new loans and new loans and new loans and new loans. And, you know, they can request more extensions and you know in the the quote interest of the public you know that there are these extra mechanisms that come into place and it's just this continual process of you know making some making some adjustments and some fine tuning on the same thing for years and years and years right and then you could you know you could call in an, you know an intermediary or something to that effect to to work through this right a new proposal uh whatever it might be and you know you could look at you know some sort of new payment plan, you know, and they've got to get Congress involved to, you know, to some extent with this, the government can become a cosigner on a loan. And the inevitable losses then are just tied to the ledger of the bank and placed on the backs of the American taxpayer. Money moves to banks through this intricate system of federal agencies, international agencies, foreign aid, direct subsidies. They extract payments from the American people and channel them to borrowers who may never repay. Very little of the money actually comes from taxes. You gotta remember that. It's generated by the Federal Reserve System. Yes, we are paying taxes and et cetera, but you gotta remember, you know, the the tax base isn't enough to cover things. So, you know, the newly created money, it returns to the banks, but then it, you know, quickly moves out again, where it dilutes the value of the money already there, right? That's why what cost a dollar a hundred years ago now costs a thousand or you know you get the idea it's not that prices are rising that's what it looks like but it's that the value of the currency is lower so it takes more of it a gallon of gas or a loaf of bread 
in reality has been a static price. Yes, there's been fluctuations due to, you know, certain mitigating factors. But if you look at it at the end of the day, it's because more and more money gets created, which devalues the currency in the economy. People in general, they have no idea what's going on. They don't know that we're footing the bill for for so much stuff. They know someone is stealing from us, and it is. It's it's theft by creation of more currency. That's why you hear, I think Robert Kiyosaki said it best. He said, why would I keep money in the bank if they can print more of it? It doesn't make any sense. That's why so many of the wealthiest in the world continue to utilize debt and just leverage debt. They do the exact same thing that the Federal Reserve System does, right? Public ignorance of how this game is actually really played is key to everything, right? And since large corporate loans are guaranteed by the federal government, okay, you would think that the banks which make the loans would never have a problem, yet many of them still end up over time with insolvency, which that's just inherent in the system when you when you deal with fractional reserve banking, right? When they're not required to maintain in their vault the amount of money that they have out there so that they can repay these things. But a bank could stay insolvent forever as long as the customers don't know about it, right? Money is brought into existence and transmitted from one form to another by ledger entries or creative bookkeeping, right? The problem only arises when someone who's got a deposit there wants to withdraw their money. And then, oh, there's not enough to go around. The bank has to close its doors. Deposit are still waiting outside. And they'll keep waiting because there's no money there. That's why, like, go go to the bank and like if you had enough money, like show up at the bank and ask for fifty grand. Like if you had a bunch of money in your, you know, in your bank account, ask for that money. They won't give it to you because they don't actually have it. They need time. Like you could request it, but you have to do it in advance because that bank needs time to go through the proper channels, do the proper paperwork or proper paperwork, proper ledger transfers and all that to make sure that then they can give it to you. They would tell you that you need that they need time because they don't actually have it. If you went to your local bank, they actually don't have that much cash on them, that much money in there. It's all bookkeeping, and it all just kind of floats around all over the place. That's why if you needed some sort of substantial deposit, they're going to tell you, we need to know ahead of time so we can process it because they need to actually go get it. It doesn't actually exist at the local branch. Right, because they're constantly lending it out. It doesn't do them any good to keep it there because if they kept it there, that means they're not loaning it out, trying to make money off of it. Okay, so it's this game, 
And it's based on an assumption that only a small portion of depositors will ever want to withdraw their money at the same time. Right? The Federal Reserve System, it allows the nation's commercial banks to, you know, operate with a very, very small amount of cash to cover these promises to pay. When a bank runs out of money and it can't, quote, keep the promise, right, the system is going to act as this, you know, last resort to get the bank. The system is ready to create more money, again, out of nothing, and lend it to any bank in trouble. You know. Now, there's a limit, right? The, the Fed isn't just going to bail anybody out. If, if they know that there's, you know, this unrealistic situation, they'll use different, you know, methods to remedy this. So you get the idea here. And then you've got, you know, the FDIC, right? It's guaranteeing that every insured deposit will be paid back regardless of the financial condition of the bank. I wonder how they can do that. You know, this money comes out of a special fund, which is created from assessments against participating banks. But the banks don't pay the assessment. The bulk of the cost is just passed on to their customers in the form of higher service fees, lower interest rates on deposits, right? It's described as an insurance fund, but it's not. It's not. It's completely deceptive. A, you know, insurance has to avoid moral hazard, right? A situation in which the policyholder has little incentive to avoid or prevent that which is being insured against. So when you have moral hazard, when normal, you know, it is normal, really, for people to become careless, and the likelihood increases that, you know, what's being insured against will actually happen. So, like, if you had a, a government program that forced everyone to pay an equal amount into a fund to protect them from the expenses of speeding tickets, right? Completely absurd. And two things would happen. Everybody would speed. We know that because it wouldn't matter. And since everybody would be getting them because people would be driving faster, right? The taxes would become ridiculous, right? That's how the FDIC operates. So you're told that you're, you know, your accounts are protected if the bank should become insolvent. So the bank opts into this. Each bank is assessed, right, a percentage of its deposits. The percentage is the same for every bank, regardless of how risky their loans are. So it doesn't, they don't have any reason to be cautious. The banks making, you know, questionable reckless loans are in a higher rate of interest than conservative loans. They're far more likely to collect from the fund, yet they pay not one cent more. 
conservative banks then are, you know, penalized. And then they start making riskier loans because they catch on. They know what's going on. Moral hazard is just a part of the system. You know, the same as with protection from speeding tickets, uh, the FDIC increases this likelihood that what's insured against will actually happen. It's a huge part of the problem. So you kind of you kind of get the idea here, you know, and it's just one of those things that is just this horrible mechanism, you know. And so just kind of wrapping up here. I know this one has gone on a lot longer, but there's so there's so much here that we can dive into. And we'll and we'll continue on. This series is definitely going to be a little bit longer than I thought it would be, but oh my gosh, it's so much fun to talk about. So Although we have a situation of national events that could appear chaotic or weird or you don't understand it, they are right in line with long-established rules that bankers and politicians follow. And in order to understand these events, you have to understand that all money in the system, the banking system, is created out of nothing through the process of making loans. When more currency is created, it's because the federal government is either requesting it for a bailout of whoever is requesting it for most recently, you know, if you look at like the, the COVID stimulus for the American citizens, right? Um, you know, through the course of history, when we've had economic collapses, uh, when they pass legislation for funding like Ukraine and other things, it's not our tax dollars that are paying for this. And that's really, it's so, the deeper you dive into this, the more it doesn't make sense how politicians talk, right? Because they go back and forth, you know, Rand Paul and others who are completely against certain things, or you've got a lot of people on the, you know, the, the, the liberal left that say, you know, we need to do this and it's, it's okay. Cause we've got the taxes to pay for it. First of all, we don't have the taxes to pay for it. Second of all, if it's being created by the Federal Reserve, it's being created as a loan to the federal government, which the people are responsible for paying, but it's never going to get repaid, ever. And whether or not the loan defaults, it doesn't. Like, there's no, there's no tangible value. It's not like gold and silver and precious metals like it used to be where you would have a tangible loss, right? They can print more of it. So it doesn't actually matter. And by having the federal government guarantee payment of the loan, you've got this mechanism built in there, right? Convince Congress that not to do so would result in great damage to the economy and hardship for people. From that point, the burden 
of the loan. It's removed from the bank ledger, transferred to the taxpayer. The FDIC, it's not insurance, right? The, the moral hazard aspect of things makes it not be insurance. So these FDIC funds that are held there, they can just be derived from, you know, assessments against banks or fees that banks pay to, you know, be in here. And ultimately then, those are funded by the depositors themselves. Things like overdraft fees. And the Federal Reserve System can freshly create new money. Floods through the economy. It looks like rising prices, but it's not. It's just the lowering of the value. The more of this, the more of something there is, the less value it has. And it is the mechanism for the greatest tax and the most devastating tax of all, inflation. And it's awful. So that's... Uh, that's enough for, for this episode. I'm trying to talk about, again, the mechanisms, how this actually works, that people can have an understanding of the system that, that we're in and how much of a nightmare it is. And really, honestly, at the end of the day, why there's quite literally no point for you to keep your money in the bank. Really, if you think about it. But again... Until uh, next time, when we uh, keep diving into this a little bit more, I want to thank you for listening to the John Q. Public Podcast Show. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you again soon. See ya.